We are today in our second uh, Sunday of our sermon, summer sermon series in the Psalms. And so last week we were in Psalm, Psalm 3. Today uh, we will be in Psalm 8 together. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 8, and you can also find it in your, in your worship guide, um, if that's easier for you. This afternoon, um, we're going to receive the truth of this psalm, which heralds the majesty of God's name over all creation and tells us something about ourselves and our standing in that creation. And we'll respond by enjoying the Lord's Supper together, by praying, singing praise, and receiving a word of blessing. But I think the proper heart response to this psalm is a heart of humility, seeing our place in creation, and of confidence, knowing our place before God and our significance in His eyes. So I hope with the Lord's help um, to get us there today. I want to mention to you before we begin that I have nothing new planned to tell you. Um, This is an old, old story. It's the same story that we have, that we hear every week, and it's because we need that every week. Um, Whether or not you realize it, what's happened to you since last Sunday has had an effect on your life. You're not exactly the same person that you were a week ago. Um, The world is constantly working to conform us to its ways, but at the same time, the works of God are never stagnant in us. He is always working in us to transform us to the image of His Son. Now, if you, if you just happen to walk, here, walk in here today out of curiosity, wondering what's going on, or if you're visiting with family um, for Father's Day or anything like that, and you're not accustomed to what we do here, it may seem new to you, but I assure you that these traditions and truths have been passed down for generations by the faithful hand of God who promises to preserve his people. We're going to read Psalm 8 together. And as we read it, I want, to, I want us to dwell on these words, to take them in with a heart that's open to receiving them so that through these words, the Lord will continue his work of transformation in us and so that his majesty may be seen. Psalm 8 will ask the question, what is man? And if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, there's something in us that seeks power, that seeks uh, glory, that seeks status and control. It might not be that we want to be rulers of a nation or, or the head of some grand organization. It might be that we just want control over our own agenda in a way that it can't be undone. It might be that we just want to control the clock so that time is not lost when we want to conserve it and we're not waiting <laughs> when, we're, when we're trying to, to get ourselves to whatever it is. Um, we just want control of all the little things in our lives. I'll go ahead and tell you this from the outset. This psalm 
is about God showcasing his greatness, his strength, his glory through weakness. So let's read it together. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Giddith. By the way, I, I think Giddith, uh, it's supposed, is, is a stringed instrument. I don't know that that's 100% known, but, but we'll, we'll go with that unless somebody wants to announce a, a better definition. Um, we're going to call it a stringed instrument. Um, to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. It is living and it is active. Lord, it transforms us. It gives us life. And so we pray that you would use it to that effect tonight. Lord, shape us. Help us to see. Thank you for the ways that you promise to work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the structure of Psalm 8 and its content so that we can see what it is that David is, is trying to communicate through poetry. Um, this is a nature psalm. It's one of five or six nature psalms, and so we'll use that device to help us um, see the truth here. The body of the psalm is enveloped with the theme of the majesty of God's name in all the earth. If you look in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, really he's, he calls God by name, O Yahweh, O Jehovah, our Master. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the theme, this is, this, is, this is what David is trying to communicate, the majesty of God and the whole earth. And so his worship begins in awe. It's supposed to be big, it's supposed to be 
thunderous. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All of creation is filled with your majesty. And then we see how these things ring out as we look through the eyes of David, through the psalm. First, we look with David's eyes above the heavens, and then secondly, at the heavens, and then finally, beneath the heavens. First, in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens, or glory, your glory is praised above the heavens. Literally, beyond the heavens, far and above, God has set his glory, far beyond what the most powerful telescope can see far beyond what the most advanced satellite can reach. God has set his glory above the heavens. My God, how glorious you are. Then when I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. This is what you've done in the heavens. You've placed these things there to put your majesty on display. Then verse 5, beneath the heavens, you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. This is what you've done on the earth. Beneath the heavens, you've made man and crowned him with glory and honor and put him in charge of your creation. Why? To put your majesty on display. So David takes us from the vastness beyond the heavens, far beyond what we can see or imagine, and he takes us into the heavens to look around the heavens to see what God has put there, and then he has us to look here, right where we are, to say even here, God has put his glory on display. I picture David as just a shepherd boy lying in a field somewhere, on a clear night, maybe he's, maybe he's relaxing next to his smokeless fire pit, and he, uh, he looks at the stars, he looks at the heavens, and he just takes it all in, and he reaches over and he picks up his acoustic giddeth, and he just starts to work out a song, and that song is Psalm 8. This is the song that has moved David. Uh, to declare the majesty of God in this way. You might be able to imagine David in his mind's eye flying to the ends of the universe and looking around and going, wow, Lord, even beyond here, even beyond these, these boundaries of what we call the universe, your glory is on display. And, and as he moves his way further and further in, he just takes it all in. So let's see why Davis, David takes us to these places. What does he want to communicate to us on this journey? Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Do what? That, that's, that's pretty strange. We were just exploring the beauty of the heavens, beyond the heavens. 
We're talking about God's, God's majesty, God's glory being displayed in all of these places. And then we're talking about baby language defeating enemies that seems so strange. But I think what David's doing is he's contrasting the greatness, the grandeur, the power of the heavenlies, the stars, the planets, the solar systems, and all the things that God has set in place and the frail cry of a child, something that doesn't seem so grand and powerful. He could use the grandest things in his creation, but he chooses to use the weakest, the smallest, the frailest to declare his glory. And why does he do this? Because the enemies of God cannot respond when so great a power comes through something that is otherwise so weak. I'm going to say that again. The enemies of God cannot respond when so great a power comes through something that is otherwise so weak. Out of babies' mouths, you have established strength to defeat enemies. There's at least one case of this in in Matthew 21. Um, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and after that he goes to the temple, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling pigeons, those who were using a sacred place for their own profit. And the blind and lame were coming to him, and he was healing them. And children were praising him, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and scribes were indignant. What is going on? Do you hear what they're doing? Who do they think you are? Why aren't you stopping this? And Jesus responds with Psalm 8. Yes, I hear them. Have you never read what David wrote in his psalm? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And you know what? We hear no response from them. Silence. The praise from the mouths of children silenced the enemy. Last week in Psalm 3, there were, there were these lines that, that say, you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. It's a picture of the power of God in our time of need and the crushing blow that he delivers to those who stand against us. Psalm 8 is an acknowledgement of that power. But here, that power is so great that he uses the weakest of his creation to stop his enemies in their tracks. But I don't think that verse 2 of Psalm 8 um, is strictly a prophecy that was fulfilled by Matthew 21. I think there's more to it than that. David's drawing a picture of us here of God's power through weakness. See, for us in our culture, what's important is, is the recognition, the success, the status, all those things that we mentioned earlier. 
But God emphasizes the weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. He establishes strength through weakness. The enemies of God cannot respond when so great a power comes through something that is otherwise so weak. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the fingers of God have formed the heavenly bodies and set them exactly where he wanted them to go. Now really the word of the Lord set these things in place, but the picture David is drawing of us is a picture of God's grand care of just placing things exactly where they should go to be the greatest display of his majesty. And this is something we can relate to, right? We've all looked at the sky on a clear night and been amazed and astonished at all that you could see, especially if you get out of the city, away from city lights, somewhere out in the country where there's no light pollution. Man, the, the sky is just... I don't, I don't have to, uh, to tell you how amazing it all is. Um, 52 years ago, humans stepped foot on the moon for the first time, and we are still trying to go farther and farther and farther, as far as science and technology will take us. And it's because it's so amazing. Um, I ran across an article last week, and I, I wasn't looking for for space articles, I just happened to, to see this one. Um, the headline grabbed my attention. It said, astronomers uh, discover the largest known spinning structures in the universe. I thought, okay, that seems interesting. Um, so I, I look into it and what had been discovered is what they described as galactic tendrils. Um, massive filaments or ropes, galaxies shaped like ropes stretching through space. And they're spinning. And, you know, there's, there was a whole lot of astronomy jargon there that I just kind of scanned through, and then I got to some numbers. And what they believe is that some of these galactic tendrils are millions of light years in length. And some are spinning at a rate of 220,000 miles an hour. We can't wrap our heads around that. I mean, these are, these are massive objects just spinning, spinning, spinning. The scientists had no answer for, for how that happened. In, in their minds, there, there's nothing that, there's no force, current force, that can create that kind of vortex. So it must have been some, um, some force that happened, you know, however many billions of years ago that set these things in motion. They had no answer for it, but I wonder if these things are really there. Did God put them there and set them spinning as a display of his majesty, just because he can. I don't know, maybe. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. 
I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power, thy glory, thy majesty throughout the universe displayed. How fitting. So what is man, verse 4? What is man that you are mindful of him? And then what is the son of man that you care for him? The word for man here is only found in in poetic language. It's, It's a poetic word that emphasizes the weakness, the frailty, the vulnerability of man. So what is man? And then he asks, the son of man, that phrase son of man, poetically drives that thought even further. The utter weakness, the humble nature of humanity. The concept of humanity communicates a smallness in relation to the vastness of the universe. Even smaller, more humble is a son of man, poetically speaking. So what is man, the son of man, that you are mindful of him and then that you care for him? God not only considers humanity, but he condescends to care for us. Structurally, the whole psalm is centered on the idea that we are insignificant in relation to the vastness of the heavens. But in God's kindness, we are highly significant on earth and in the eyes of God, so much so that he's given us the highest position. The center of the psalm is the glory of man enveloped by the majesty of God. So when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about him? Of all created things, only humans can ask this. Who are we that you care for us? So what is man? If we go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we were created and made to be for a time only lower than the heavenly beings. We were created to be crowned with glory and honor in a way that honors and magnifies God's glory. We were created to have dominion over the works of God's hands, to steward his creation. However degraded we might be, however ruined, there is still the glory of what we were created to be. 
Think about this. The angels, the heavenly beings, the, the, the ministering spirits are not called the children of God by adoption as sons. They are ministering spirits to the children of God. They are not promised according to the scriptures an eternal inheritance. That inheritance was purchased by Christ and is reserved for us. They aren't, as Paul says, the first to hope in Christ. They rejoice with a thunderous rejoicing at the repentance of sinful man. And they weren't given dominion over creation. They are in service to the Lord as ministers to those who were given dominion. There is a glory that we were created for, for the purpose of magnifying the majesty of our Lord. Now the response to this should never be, hey, wow, look at me, look how important I am. Look at what all I've been given. I think the proper response should be, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who am I that you care for me? It's a totally different posture. Verses six, seven, and eight are a picture of the glory that God has given us over the rest of creation. It says this, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So what are we to do with this? Do you feel like you have dominion over all things? My daughters, who are actually here tonight, um, thankful for that, uh, they used to ride horses when they were growing up, and they, they did the show jumping competitions and all that. And um, I remember at one competition, one of my girls was doing her routine, and she was kind of getting close to the end of that routine and, and approaching one of the final jumps. And as she got close and was about to, uh, to do that jump, her horse just stopped. And my daughter didn't stop. She kept going, heels overhead, and she landed with a thud on the ground that took the breath out of the crowd. It was scary. She had lost her dominion. She didn't have control over that horse. In our sin and rebellion, we squandered the glory that we had been given. In our lust for power, we've lost dominion. Things are not what they were created to be. We get thrown off our horses all the time in life. We think that we have some sense of control and then without warning, we can lose all control and come crashing down and it knocks the breath out of us. Sometimes we try to piece it together, we try to pose and, and posture as if we're fine when really on the inside we're crumbling and we're gasping. Have you ever felt that? 
I wonder if some of you are feeling it now. If you haven't lived long enough to feel it yet, you will. That, that deep, soul-wrenching pain that comes in life. The darkness, the helplessness, the questioning. And rather than asking, who am I that you care about me? We're tempted to ask, where are you? Do you really even care about me? It's a dark and shattered glass that this world puts in front of us. It's so hard to see sometimes. If you've ever tried to, to drive uh, looking through a shattered windshield, you get, you get an idea of what that might look like. Everything is distorted. You can't really make anything out. But in his kindness, the Lord answers to us, I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. You're not alone. When I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Our Lord Jesus himself was made for a little while lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings by taking on human form, living in a, in a body like ours, vulnerable to the sufferings and pains of life and suffering death, according to the writer of Hebrews. He has been crowned with glory and honor by being raised from death to life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and following says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Our windshields are shattered. But if we look closely by God's help, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
The Apostle Paul helps complete the thought in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then later he says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a statement of power and victory for your sake. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then finally back in Hebrews, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we move through life as our own drivers, um, as those who um, control the steering wheel and shift the gears, and, and we're looking so often through shattered glass, unable to see our way, aimlessly running into things, making the wrong turns. But Lord, I I pray that you would help us to see. I pray that you would give us hearts to obey. I pray that for our sakes, we are able to behold the majesty of your glory in all creation. Give us that kind of vision, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.